on Friday night, about two minutes before midnight, there were several of us in the hospital room at Mayo with Jan Bradison as she peacefully slipped into the presence of Jesus. Her prayer was, I just want to be with you. Jan passed into the presence of God Friday night. And we wanted you to know that it was peaceful. The presence of Jesus was there with her. And we know that by Saturday morning, right at midnight, she was dancing. She was with Jesus. We rest in that assurance, knowing that Jan went from here to there in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. We'll be celebrating her life on Saturday. We're not sure the time, but it'll be Saturday the 19th uh, here at the church. We'll let you know more details as we know. Probably about 11 or 12, there'll be a visitation uh, viewing and then followed by a memorial service on this coming Saturday. So um, we'll have more details as it, as it comes available. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you've given us the assurance that we can dance in your presence and, and our desire is to just be with you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to give us a hunger for you. We thank you that when we are in this world, we get a, a taste of that as we worship you and praise you, especially in the presence of other believers as we worship you. And I just pray, God, that you would continue to work in our lives as you change our lives. And I pray that our focus would be leaving all the things that are so distracting and be able to focus on you so we can just be with you. And I pray now, Lord, you'll take the living word of God. We, we thank you that you, God, are in charge. You have granted your authority to your people. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to envision us with the power that you've given us to live victoriously in this life. And I pray that you'll now take the word of God, the living word. Let nothing in me get in the way of what you want to say, that we would be changed today because of your presence and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are completing a series today on spiritual warfare. We've talked over the last several weeks about the fact that we are at war. It appears to be, thank you for getting me on, there we go. It appears to be that we're in a political war, war of ideas, or culture wars, or value wars, a war over traditional marriage, or women's rights, or sexual identity, or socialism, whatever it might be. And this warfare works its way out in the realm of ideas, and politics, and values, and rights. But the real battle is invisible. It's an invisible war, a spiritual war. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. There's a war, and we have an opponent called the devil, or Satan. We don't like to talk about it much, but we need to be aware. We shouldn't be alarmed, but we need to be aware. God is all-powerful, and God is sovereign, but Satan has an obvious influence and powerful presence in our world. We've asked the question, what does God allow Satan to do, and what are indications of a spiritual attack? How do we know it's Satan or the devil who's responsible? And what are our weapons? How do we fight? What do we have in our arsenal to fight in the heavenly realm? Some people deny that Satan has any power or they minimize his role in history and the affairs of people. But the Bible teaches us to worship God, but be aware, be aware of Satan. Last Sunday, last week, we looked at the three major battlegrounds, three major battlegrounds. We discovered that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. But we also find out that Satan hates you and has a horrible plan for your life. There's, a, there's an opposing force. God has a plan he wants to fulfill. In 1 Peter 5.8, it says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. He's on attack. He's, on, he's prowling. He's trying to find people that he can devour. Satan's plan for all of us as people or human beings is destruction. John 10.10 10 says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says in order that Satan may not outwit us, we are not unaware of his schemes. We're to be aware. Satan's plan is to steal, kill, and destroy. The three battlegrounds we looked at are, first of all, the mind. There's a battle in the minds and for the minds of people. Then there's the heart, the area of affection. He's, he's battling and trying to capture our affections. And then there's the mouth, the tongue being a small part of the body, but making great boasts. And there's a battle for what happens with our, with our speech or our mouth. Today, we're going to talk about spiritual authority lost and restored, lost and restored. We're going to cover a lot of information today, and that's why I have the passages of Scripture in the outline so you can look at this later because there's no way we can exhaust all of this in a 30-minute message. And we're going to begin today with some foundational truths to understand about how did this all start? Where did this all begin? What is this fight all about? We're talking about authority because it's basically who's in charge. Is it God or Satan? And where do we line up? Where do we line up in this battle? Battle of the ages between good and evil, between God and Satan. Let's start by talking about spiritual authority. What is authority, first of all? What is authority? Authority is defined as the power or right to give commands, enforce or be obedience or take action. And spiritual authority would mean the power or right to give commands, enforce or obedience, or take action in the spiritual realm. Now, I know we hesitate to exercise spiritual authority. It seems like it's kind of this, this weird area, and we kind of don't want to think about it. Somehow we seem to be convinced that we don't have that spiritual authority. Maybe 
a minister or pastor has it. Maybe exorcists can do it. Maybe spiritual giants that Jesus did and his disciples did. But me, I, I, I don't think so. It's too weird. I don't want to talk about that spiritual authority thing. But if someone asked you, do Christians have authority over all the powers of darkness, demonic forces, and Satan? If you ask that question, most people, most believers would say, yes, theoretically, I suppose we have that power. I suppose that's true theologically, but don't ask me to do anything about it. We're kind of, we're going to stay away from that stuff. The spiritual battle, that's kind of in that realm we don't want to mess with. When it comes to spiritual warfare, when we're under attack in our minds, in our hearts, or our mouth, we begin to doubt what this is about. We hide or we ignore. And we kind of want someone else to fight that for us. But understanding, we must understand that we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. We're to be aware, not alarmed. We're to be alert, not afraid. Now, most of us will come to church on a Sunday, sing great songs of praise, talk with other Christians, and, and leave feeling confident, feeling like, wow, we got this. This is awesome. But by Tuesday or Thursday, we start feeling weak or defeated. The problem is we confuse our authority with our feelings. Or we think of authority as a personality type. This person is a man of authority or she is a very authoritative person. And since I'm kind of reserved, I'm shy, I kind of back away. But we must realize that authority, especially spiritual authority, is not a matter of feelings. It's a matter of fact. Not feelings, it's fact. Authority is not a matter of a personality type. Authority is a matter of legality. It's a legal issue. Our basis of authority is legal. It's a matter of legal authority. Now, one single police officer can stand in the middle of a, a roadway or freeway and raise his hand like this. And what happens? Semi-trucks, trucks, cars, everybody comes to stop. Why? Why does he do that? Because he has legal authority to make you stop. Dean Sherman writes this. He said, our authority is a legal reality that does not waver because of our unbelief, and it as, is as real as any transaction. And he goes on to compare, compare it to the legal arrangement like, like marriage. If I ask people, are you married? They never say, well, I'm not sure. I hope so. Sometimes I, I feel married and sometimes I don't. Why? The answer is always going to be, am I married or not? Yes or no. Are you married? Why? Because marriage is a legal arrangement with a document to prove it. Feelings, thoughts, personality types do not change a legal reality. You're either yes or no. So when we're talking about spiritual authority, the legal reality, and hopefully we'll get a handle on that today, the legal reality is spiritual authority is a legal Reality. Now, for us to understand how authority and how it works, we have to start at the beginning. And I'm talking literally the beginning, at the creation and the Garden of Eden. And I want us to start today with Roman numeral one. This is when spiritual authority was given. This is when spiritual authority was given. 
In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. What is that a statement of, this legal reality? God gave mankind, or man, dominion, rule, and authority over all the earth. Given it to human beings. He's given it to us. And God also gave people free will. Authority belonged to God, but he gave some of it, or he delegated it to mankind. And he's never taken it back. People still have authority and they have free will today. That's why people can and do all kinds of good things and they do all kinds of bad things. God doesn't stop them. They've been given spiritual authority. That was then. Then we find spiritual authority was lost. How was it lost or given up? Spiritual authority lost. Roman numeral A asks the question, where was it lost? In Genesis 3, many of you are familiar with this passage. 1 through 5, it says this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. As the story unfolds, we find Satan in the Garden of Eden in the form of a serpent. Why did Satan approach Eve? Was it just to deceive her? He wanted to get back at God, to hurt God. But even more, Adam and Eve had something of incredible value to Satan. Satan wanted authority. The authority that God had given to people. So he tempted Eve. And what he was really saying is, why don't you sign some of your authority over to me? Dean Sherman writes, Satan knew that man could use the authority given him. When man disobeyed God, Satan was able to usurp man's authority. Just as God transferred some of his authority to man, so man passed it on to Satan. Satan doesn't have total authority. He can't rule the world. He operates today like he did in Eden, by usurping what God had given man. God gave his authority. Man man gave his authority to Satan, but Satan can only use it through man. He can only influence the world to the degree that mankind or people choose to sin and live in disobedience. Okay? I know this kind of... Crazy sounding. God, who does God do his work through? God does his work through people. Now, God can do direct work. He can do all kinds of stuff. But God chooses to do his work through people. Satan also does his work through people. If we sin against God, 
Whom do we serve and who do we give that authority to? To the enemy, to the devil. And so you see there's this cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. And we're in the middle and we have to say, we have authority. Who are we giving that authority to? Good or evil, God or Satan? Whom do we grant that authority to? Satan usurped God's authority by seducing mankind into sin. Thereby we give Satan power. So what are the results of lost authority? What are the results? Genesis 3.15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What are the results? First, it's enmity. We become adversaries. Satan and the woman became adversaries. Satan and the woman's offspring. Who was that? It was all people. And since we are descendants of Adam and Eve, we're people, Satan is our adversary. And Satan is always trying to steal, kill, and destroy through people, usurping our God-given authority. There's a battle for control between Satan and all human beings. And he gains control when we sin and allow him to have authority and influence. The second enmity, first was the woman's offspring, the nation of Israel. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. There's a passage that talks about the promise of God. In Genesis 12, it says, The Lord said to Abram, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. God was to bless all people through Abraham. How was that to happen? How did the blessing of Abraham come to us through Jesus through Jesus the offspring the enmity of the women's offspring were the were the people of God and then it was specifically Jesus Jesus Galatians 4 4 through 5 says but when the time had fully come God sent his son born of a woman born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights as sons Woman's offspring. The first result of, lo- was, of lost authority was enmity. And then the second result of lost authority was sin and death. See, there was no sin and there was no death until Adam and Eve sinned. I don't know if you've ever said this. Man, if I was there, I'd have never sinned. It, it wouldn't have happened through me. You know, you, we think about those things. But realizing that 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 they were tempted to sin. And after sin, it's death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. That's what happened. That's where sin came in and death. And the third result was warfare. Warfare. When you read through the Old Testament, it's a historical record of God bearing the offspring of women or woman through the nation of Israel in order to bring Jesus Christ into the world. 
So Jesus would crush Satan's head, render him powerless. Satan would strike his heel. Jesus, wound him, not destroy him. When we look at the Old Testament, and I, I'll tell you what, if you've never read through the Old Testament, I encourage you to read through it. It's, there are parts of it a little bit easier to read, a lot of the stories and narratives, but there's so much in there about the history. We, don't, we cannot understand the New Testament or the life of Christ or anything today without understanding the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a history of Satan's attempts to corrupt the offspring or destroy the offspring of Israel. Why is the Old Testament so violent? Because God was bringing the offspring of the woman, the nation of Israel, forward to that day of the promised Messiah, Jesus, so that the whole world could be saved. Now the warfare, as as we read through the Old Testament, the first goal of the enemy was to corrupt Israel. And you know when they, when they, would, they would start worshiping false gods and they would start practicing immorality and all these other things. Satan was trying to corrupt the nation of Israel so that it wasn't a pure nation. So that if he could destroy the nation of Israel by corruption, then there wouldn't be a nation of Israel and Jesus would never be able to come to die and to save us. Corruption was the first action that he took. And God had to continually send judgment on the Jews to get them to return to the one true God. Corruption. In the temptation of Jesus in Luke 4, Satan was trying to corrupt Jesus. These are covert, covert methods of warfare. Then we have overt methods of warfare. We read all through the Old Testament that Satan continually incited the godless nations around Israel to attack her and destroy her. Always the Jews. Now, there is no other explanation for the modern incidents or truth of anti-Semitism than Satan is trying to destroy the people of God, the Jews, Israel. Anti-Semitism, the most well-known is Nazi Germany. But Jews have been targeted for destruction Many, many times over history. Read the book of Esther. They're going to wipe them out. The Jews. No other people group or nation has had the issue. Norwegians? Swedes? Asians? Hispanics? No. It's always been Satan's plot to destroy the Jews. Because it was through the Jewish nation that Jesus was going to come. Remember when Jesus was born. We're coming up to Christmas. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and Herod, King Herod, was afraid that somebody would threaten his throne. And he heard that this was going to be the king of the Jews, and so he sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the boys two years and under. Historical reality had happened. And they had to take Jesus and flee to Egypt. See, they were trying to destroy the seed. They were trying to destroy Jesus. Satan's final attempt to destroy Jesus the Messiah was to murder him or have him crucified. One of the most enlightening passages, I think, in, in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. This was Satan's final attempt to destroy the Messiah. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 says... 
We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age, those are the demonic forces, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It's amazing. They said, if we can just kill this guy, it'll be over. That was God's plan. He kept it concealed from the beginning of time. This crucifixion. Crucifixion. That was God's plan. Nobody knew. Defeating the enemy, not through power, but through humility. Winning the war through selflessness and sacrifice. John 10, Jesus says, The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take that up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority. There's a word. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. It was God's plan from the very beginning. And had they known it, they wouldn't have crucified him. It says they wouldn't have crucified him. Because by crucifying Jesus, it played right into God's hands. The fourth result of lost authority is to neutralize. Satan wanted to render powerless. And we grant Satan authority when we doubt. If we just doubt, it's the opposite of faith. When we live in fear. And I'll, let me tell you something. Fear is just rampant. I mean, the, the whole issue of the pandemic was fear. It was fear. People living in fear. How can I survive? It's fear, fear, fear. And caution is one thing, but living in fear is totally antithetical to the way God wants us to live. Fear, John Dawson says, is faith in the devil. Faith in the devil. And then there's rebellion. If we reject God's authority, we play right into Satan's hands by giving it to him. So if we live in rebellion, if we live in sin, we basically play into the hands of the enemy. And we see lives all around us. We see an entire nation, our country, being decimated because people are living in sin and unrighteousness. What are the results of that? We need to reclaim that authority based on our relationship, our right relationship with God. So Satan attacks us in the ways described. Enmity, he will always be our enemy. Covert warfare, which is trying to corrupt us and undermine our morals and values and truth. And overt warfare, seeking our destruction. In 1 John 5, 1, 5-7 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. All sin. That's the promise he has. The blood of Jesus will purify us. So we looked at spiritual authority where it started. We talked about how we lost it. Now, let's talk about spiritual authority restored. Okay? This is 
the great news, the good news of all this. And, and I know some of this is brand new to some of you, and it's, and it's going to be hard to process. That's why I want you to read the notes and read the scriptures when you get home. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says, When you were dead in your sin and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Romans 5, 12, and 18 and 19 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Okay, we're all in the same boat. Okay, consequently, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. One man through one man's sin, Adam and Eve, they sinned, Sin can pass on to all of us. Through one's act of righteousness, Jesus, justification was offered to anybody and all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. So how is our spiritual authority restored? What's the legal basis of our authority? How do we know we have it? It's not how I feel. It's not that I believe it. It's how is it done? Number one, letter A, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died. He paid for our sins. We don't have to pay for him. Satan will come after people and say, God will never forgive you for that. Can you believe how bad you are? Look at all the things you've done in your lifetime. There's no way God's going to forgive you. The legal reality is Jesus died for every one of your sins. There's no sin that's too bad to be forgiven. He died for all sins. And it's not limited in scope by time. God placed all our sins on Jesus at one time, one place. Our sins were paid once for all. How can that be? Jesus was infinite God. And because he was the son of God and God himself, he had the power to take all the sin for all time on himself. If he was just one man, you can die for one other person. He died for all of mankind, all of our sins, for all of time. Because he's infinite and his sacrifice has infinite reach. He died for the penalty of sins and the power of sins. The penalty is what I have to pay. The power is living under that, that weight of sin now. And because of that, our authority legally is restored. Your authority has been restored, and you can stand on that. Stand on the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and say, legally, I'm set free. I'm not guilty because he paid for those sins. Authority restored. Secondly, this, this, and this gets a little more confusing, said Jesus descended into Hades. Ephesians 4, 8, 9 says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he descended mean except that he also descended the lower earthly regions? Hades was the abode of the dead. Paradise was, for believers, a place of comfort. For unbelievers, a place 
of torment. And there, there's something that happened when he died, said he descended, and he announced to everybody, you're free. You're free. He announced to all those that had gone before. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the, pris- the spirits in prison. Now, we're not sure exactly how that happened, but basically he declared to those that were in bondage, you're free. You're free to go. You now have your authority restarted. You're set free. Said he gave gifts to men, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He took back at that moment all the authority that had been lost to Satan historically. It's a legal document, a legal action. 1 Peter 3.22, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So Jesus ascended into Hades. Then he was resurrected. He was resurrected. Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. All authority. When he was resurrected. Revelation 1, 18. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. He has the keys. That's our legal Reality. That's where we live, in that legal reality. And then Jesus ascended to heaven. Ephesians 1, 18 to 23 says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's a lot there. You're going to have to read that later. Okay? Basically, it says he's the boss of the universe. He has all authority. Based on his resurrection and his ascension, he's seated at the right hand of God Almighty. That's where he is. That, that's a legal authority that he has. His authority restored. In Luke 10, letter E, his authority is restored. Luke 10, 18 to 19 says, I saw Satan fall like a lightning from heaven. I have given you, Jesus said, authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. All the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. 1 John 4, 4, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I shared some things earlier in this series about encounters with people that had demonic possession or they had powers that we could see. And the passage we quote many times is, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit in us, authority, power, dominion, 
because of Jesus. So what does all this mean? It means you don't have to be kicked around by Satan. You don't have to be intimidated. You don't have to be afraid. Jesus won. He took back the authority. And then he turned around and gave it to his followers, to you and to me. Satan can attack you, but he has no authority to defeat you. He can roar, but he cannot bite. He can intimidate, but he has to run. He can bluff, but he has to flee. He has no authority. He has no power as long as we don't give him any. You have the authority given by Jesus, no matter how you feel, no matter your personality, no matter how long you've been a believer, a week or 40 years, you have the authority. Spiritual authority given, lost, and restored. We got it. And no weapon, no weapon, no weapon formed against you will succeed. So the Bible says. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us insight into the reality of our authority, the legal reality that we have. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to understand and believe it, to believe it. Father, we know that the enemy is very active in every way. But we know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And I pray, God, you'll give us wisdom and insight that we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have the power of God in us by the Holy Spirit. That we would win. We would have victory. And we can live above all of the other things that are happening in this world. Father, we appropriate and believe again for that authority. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?